The next thing I know is I wake up and I just remember like something bad happened to me last night. Somebody hurt me. This is Carrie Lowe's story. Carrie did everything, quote unquote, right. She reported right away. Her legal team says police systematically mishandled her case. Meanwhile, her attackers remain at large. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is Carrie Lowe versus. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Emil Niazi, in for Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Canadian news could soon disappear from Canadians' Google searches and their Facebook and Instagram feeds. It requires us to compensate news publishers. This is such a bully tactic. They're concerned about precedents being set because they don't want this legislation moving to other countries too. The standoff between tech giants and Canada's government. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... When robots participate... It creates a paradigm shift. Why AI could stand in for humans in social science studies. From Bollywood to Broadway... It's a huge deal to see this movie on stage. An iconic Indian film comes to the stage in Canada. And they're quaint, cute and radical. Stop normalizing the grind and normalize whatever this is. The wholesome critter memes drowning out hustle culture online. All today on Day 6... The Squirrels versus Capitalism edition. Facebook has decided to be unreasonable, irresponsible, and started blocking news. This is why, today, we are announcing the Government of Canada will be suspending advertising on Facebook and Instagram. That's Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez earlier this week. On Wednesday, the federal government announced it was pulling its ads from platforms owned by Meta. This move was part of a back and forth between the government and tech giants over a recently passed Bill C-18, also called the Online News Act. The government says the bill will help support Canada's ailing news industry, which has seen decreasing ad revenue and downsizing for many years. We've seen uh, Facebook and other countries post, oh, other companies post record profits uh, over the past years, at the same time as local independent journalism has struggled. C18 will require major tech companies like Google and Meta to compensate news outlets for Canadian news links posted on their platforms. Supporters of the bill say it's a way to make sure a portion of the tech giant's massive ad revenue stays in Canada. You have to stand up to these two companies that effectively have a duopoly in the digital advertising market. Well, now it's more like a standoff. Google and Meta have responded by threatening to remove links to Canadian news from their platforms. Some Canadian news pages already disappeared from Instagram this week. We are proceeding towards ending the availability of news permanently in Canada. Laura Tribe is executive director at Open Media, an organization that campaigns for an open, accessible internet. She says that this news blocking by the tech giants will have a drastic impact on how Canadians access news and what news they see. But she's also been critical of Bill C-18. Laura, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Laura, were you surprised to see the government actually double down on its stance on C-18 this week and remove all of its ads from Instagram? No, uh, I think that the government's been pretty clear that they are trying to make a point of really standing up to uh, Meta and to Google. And that, you know, despite 
how sudden this might have come on for the public, this has been a longstanding conversation and a bit of a showdown between the government and these two companies. And I think that we've kind of come to a head where the government's running out of options. And this is one of their last kind of mechanisms of punishment for Meta. And yet the impact seems to be on Canadians. You know, you're an advocate for open internet. How troubled were you to see Canadian news vanish from Instagram this week? I mean, I think this is a really big blow for Canada and for Canadians. And this is really going to lead to some damaging consequences in the short and long term. I think the most frustrating part, uh, as someone who is advocating for uh, democracy and for the open internet and access to information in Canada, is that it was entirely preventable. And the government has really backed itself and these companies into a corner. And at the end of the day, you know, we, the people using the internet, are the collateral damage. And that's that's really frustrating. You say entirely preventable. Is that because your organization has suggested that Bill C-18 made it inevitable that Google and Meta would respond the way that they have? Yeah. And, and these consequences were made clear to the government before Bill C-18 was passed. So in the way that the bill is crafted, it is kind of limitlessly punitive to these companies uh, financially. And so if they don't come into compliance, not only are there financial penalties for not acting perfectly, but until they actually have any clarity from the government right now, what's expected of these companies is to compensate every single news outlet for every single link that they ever serve or is shared on their platforms endlessly. And I think where that's really hard is that these are for-profit companies who ultimately, at the end of the day, need to turn a profit. And that is just not something for their business model that they would ever be willing to withstand. And they made that clear up front. And I think, you know, the government tried to call their bluff and it turns out they weren't bluffing. But on the other hand, you know, it's not entirely limitless. The government itself has said they estimate that these companies will pay collectively something like $330 million if they comply with the law. And these, you know, these are hardly nonprofits. They're making billions of dollars in ad revenue in Canada. So why isn't it fair to ask them to put some of that back into this country and its news organizations? Oh, I think it's absolutely fair to ask them to put money back into the news in Canada. They should and can put back into the Canadian economy and Canadian culture. I think where the trick is, is the bill is really vaguely worded. And so although we hear assurances from the minister of what compliance might look like, that's not in writing. That is not in the bill. And until that is clear, and until the companies know what compliance looks like, they are inherently non-compliant because they haven't been able to do what's being asked of them. I think the government put the cart before the horse a little bit this one in the way that they have promised things that aren't actually in writing. Let's go back to the impact then on Canadians. You know, we're so used to being able to Google something, click on a news link. What's my search page going to look like if Meta and Google fully block Canadian news? It's going to look different. You might search for something expecting news results to come up. You might actively search for a news story and you won't see those results from Canadian news outlets. So let's say you are looking up air quality advisories and trying to find out what's been going on with the wildfires. When you search that in Google, if the news is blocked, you will only receive American news stories about the air quality in Canada, but you will not get Canadian outlets. You will still get government advisories. You will still get 
institutions that have credible information about that, but you won't get the CBC's stories about that. You would have to go directly to the CBC to find that. And so I think it's going to disproportionately show American or international news results Mm -hmm. where we're not going to see any Canadian outlets, which is actually going to damage Canadian media, who are the best position to cover Canadian issues. But it's also going to have people stop looking for it. Because if you go searching for it, it's not there. People might instead start turning directly to news outlets themselves, but they're not going to discover new sources. They're only going to go where they already know. And if that outlet isn't covering it, maybe to those people, the news just doesn't exist. Right. And then you think about sort of that the misinformation side of it, too. If the stuff that's usually on page four of my Google search is now at the very top, what's the impact on on the quality of the news that I'm getting? I mean, the quality of news is something that has been of concern for years. And that's really why the government is so invested in trying to support credible news outlets. But you're right. That's what this is going to do. And I know that Google uh, has been actively working to try and make sure that they are serving the most credible results, but the most credible ones are now going to be missing. And so what is going to be excluded from the search results is what the government has defined basically as news. So all of those fringe websites or blogs, they might still exist, uh, but you're not going to find the most trusted, most reliable sources fastest or easiest. So the government says, okay, Bill C-18 is designed to help these ailing news organizations. But open media has said even if Google and Meta complied perfectly with the bill, it still wouldn't accomplish that purpose. Why is that? The way that the bill is written is that Google and Meta will need to compensate news outlets every time they serve a link to their news story. And what that ultimately does is tie those news outlets directly to the success of their results in Google search engine and how many times they show up on Facebook or Instagram. And what that looks like to get people to click on that is ultimately creating clickbait. And so it really reinforces some negative trends in journalism in the news that we're actually trying to break. Uh, It ignores things like investigative journalism or local journalism that might get less clicks, but me more be more important and ultimately incentivizes people to just produce news that gets clicks because those links are what pay the bills. And what C18 does, which is why I think we have kind of come to a bit of a standstill, is it really ties the entire journalism industry's success on the continued profitability of not just Google and Meta, but this kind of clickbait culture. And even if Meta and Google come to the table and they negotiate with dozens and dozens of news outlets across Canada to try and find a way forward to make this bill work. Um, And that is a big even if. It is going to disproportionately support legacy media outlets. So the biggest media outlets are the most likely to be able to sit down and, and negotiate with some clout. And if you are a smaller independent media outlet, you don't have anyone to negotiate on your behalf necessarily, let alone the skills or resources to sit down and really push Google for all that you're worth. The big are going to keep getting even bigger. And what we're really missing is local independent news. In the ideal world, we would see long-term sustainable funding through something like an independent fund set up to continue to provide funding for these news outlets beyond just saying, well, Google will pay your bills. Uh, And I think 
there's a lot of details to be worked out between the version of C-18 that was written and the regulations that would get us there. But ultimately, we want sustainable news in Canada. We want to make sure that Canadians are getting credible information and they're getting it across a variety of platforms when and where they need it. I think a lot of Canadians will be watching this story very closely. Laura, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Laura Tribe is Executive Director at Open Media. Still to come on Day 6, what do online memes featuring critters have to do with capitalism? A lot, apparently. I want to be Peter Rabbit. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. We need an independent kind of investigation of what has been happening at AFN in terms of government meddling. The former National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations is calling for an investigation into potential government interference in the organization. Roseanne Archibald was ousted last week by a wide margin of 70%. But the virtual assembly that held the vote was attended by delegates representing less than half of all the eligible First Nations. Archibald faces allegations of workplace harassment and of creating a toxic work environment, all of which she denies. Meanwhile, tomorrow, according to the APTN, one of the 11 regional chiefs that make up the executive at the Assembly of First Nations will be selected as its interim leader. The AFN's 44th Annual Assembly takes place next week in Halifax. And... El Niño is a natural phenomenon that shows up when ocean surface temperatures in the eastern central Pacific become warmer than usual. This week, the World Meteorological Organization warned that the arrival of El Nino will likely threaten lives and cause temperatures to rise to new heights. And then, almost immediately, the global heat record was broken. First on Monday, followed by Tuesday, which is now the world's hottest day in recorded history. The last time the El Nino climate phenomenon made an appearance was 2016. That year went on to become the hottest year on record, and it still is. But a WMO report from this past spring predicts there is a 98% chance that at least one of the next five years will beat the record set in 2016. Still to come on day six, why AI could answer questions instead of you for social science research. We are a little bit puzzled on the one hand, excited and puzzled. It was a fine autumn. The blackberries were ripe, the nuts were ready, and the mice of Brambley Hedge were very busy. Every morning they went out into the fields to gather seeds, berries and roots, which they took back to the store stump and carefully stowed away for the winter ahead. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Ripe blackberries, a bit of foraging, and the security of knowing you have a stockpile of preserves set aside for the winter. That was an excerpt from Autumn Story from the Brambley Hedge series of children's books by Jill Barklam. Brambley Hedge gives readers a peek into the quaint, busy, but peaceful lives of a group of mice living in the English countryside. The mice split their days between farm chores, picnicking outside, and cozying up in their tree stump homes with pots of tea. The mice piled up their plates with scones, tarts, pies, and Mrs. Apple's special spring pudding. Could I have more pie? Oh, more pie? Right, who wants a poppy seed bun? And if all that has you thinking you kind of want to ditch your 9 to 5 and join them, well, you're definitely not alone. 
The internet is a tough place. I understand the desire to sort of be like, don't yell at me. I'm but a badger in a forest. (laughs) That's Rebecca Jennings. She's a senior correspondent at Vox who covers internet culture. She's been very taken with an online trend that taps into this desire, and it's called critter posting. So I didn't coin the term critter posting. That was coined by Sakshi Roxdale at Know Your Meme. And what she described to me as critters are harmless. They are innocent in a very like naive, childlike way. It's just like, I'm a little baby. Don't be mean to me. Rebecca told us why the cozy lives of storybook creatures appeal to critter post creators today. So a critter post looks like someone maybe making a joke that seems like it's about anything normal, but the picture attached to it is a picture of a Beatrix Potter mouse in a little tree. It's taking the classic illustrations of Beatrix Potter or Frog and Toad or Brambly Hedge or The Wind in the Willows and putting a modern joke attached to it. A classic critter post is like, stop normalizing the grind and normalize whatever this is. And then it's a picture of a mouse in an apron cooking dinner for her three little mice children living in a tiny shoe in the forest. There's another one that's like, me and the girls during soup season, and it's a mouse making soup. They're meant to be relatable, but they're they're juxtaposed against the least relatable thing in the world. You know, we are humans, we are not mice and bunnies in the forest. Critter posting definitely stems from cottagecore, a kind of internet aesthetic that was really, really popular in 2020 when we were all stuck in lockdown and people got a lot of fulfillment out of looking at pictures of little cottages, this very idealized version of farm life. It's not crazy to link critter posting to the romanticism of the late 19th century. Romanticism came about because of late Victorian industrialization. When we talk about critter posting, we're often drawing on works from that same time period. You know, Beatrix Potter, Alice in Wonderland, too. These are all written in this time of huge technological shifts that were making people feel really untethered from what made them human. So in the 19th century, people were romanticizing the Middle Ages, just as now we're romanticizing this romanticized version of the 19th century. One of the central ironies of critter posting is that when we post pictures of these little Beatrix Potter critters in their homes, they're working really hard. They are living rural lives, which are tough. Beatrix Potter herself really romanticized rural lives until she lived one herself. And she was like, well, it's really hard to romanticize farm life when I'm doing animal chores all day. It really sucks. (laughs) Um, Not in those words. This yearning that is so evident in these images of these cottages and these little animals is a yearning for something that never actually existed in real life. I think critter posting is ultimately a response to this very kind of hegemonic part of Instagram that's like, wake up every day at 6 a.m. or you're nothing. This one is for the grind, for the hustle. It's like, you should be in constant pursuit of self-improvement and money and beauty. This is an extreme backlash to that. 
I think the people who are most drawn to critter posting are people who are most affected by what we are supposed to do online. And by that, I mean people whose appearances are often judged. I'm talking about women and queer people who often feel like we have to present a certain image to the world in order to be respected or taken seriously. The longing to sort of just be able to shove it to the side and be like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be hot or rich or fabulous. I don't even want to be a person anymore. I want to be Peter Rabbit. Yeah, it's a very understandable urge. It is a little bit radical to say no to the whole thing, to say no, that like, I'm not going to try my damnedest to be the hottest girly on Instagram or trying so hard to be this internet ideal of what a woman should look like. There's something radical in saying that I don't strive to be a boss babe or a super mom or whatever it is. I strive to have a little cup of tea with my friends who are also animals and take care of each other and frolic in the grass. (laughs) Rebecca Jennings is a senior correspondent at Vox covering internet culture. I think it's comparable in scale with the Industrial Revolution or electricity. Electricity. Or maybe the wheel. Or maybe the wheel. That's Jeffrey Hinton, who's considered the godfather of artificial intelligence. AI is already changing the game for educators, artists, and lawyers. And now it's entering yet another field, social science research. Researchers from Canadian and American universities recently published a paper on how AI could replace some human participants in social science studies. They say AI participants could be used to generate hypotheses and even simulate human behavior that can be studied in research. Igor Grossman is a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo. He's also the lead author of the paper. Igor, welcome to Day 6. Thank you so much for having me. So, Igor, you know, I'm curious, what kind of reaction do you get when you tell people you're looking into how AI could replace humans in social science research? Uh, it depends on whom I talk to. Mm-hmm. So some people, are, <laughs> they are in disbelief and reject the idea outright. Others think that I propose some Orwellian future. Mm-hmm. And others are very curious or even tell me, Uh, Well, this is uh, old news. We knew that already, especially if I talk to some who are at the intersection of AI, uh, computer science and behavioral sciences. So, Igor, I know that, you know, scientists are already looking at using this to replace research assistants and, and other things. But what about actually using AI instead of human participants in this research? Can you walk me through what that would look like? Sure. One possibility is you ask a model like GPT-4 to create a range of responses to a particular question. And then you convert those responses to what a human would normally fill out on a scale from one to seven. And um, then you ask the model to do it again, 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 let's say you do a thousand times, and then you basically have a silicon sample, as some people call it. The critical part here is that what researchers often do is they 
first prime the model by creating a certain context. So the response should not be just like a response, but it should represent the person from a particular demographic background, from a particular region with a particular political leaning. So for instance, how conservative Christian from Nebraska, who is in their 60s and who is male, would answer this question. So there are several studies that have been doing that, especially in the domain of political science. And there are some studies that do something different, also simulating participants where they try to simulate responses on specific tasks where previously human participants were used to see how the model would respond on average compared to humans. And uh, what's interesting there is that some of the biases that we also see in human responses, we also find in these online systems. Well, I'm glad you brought up bias, actually, because it, it is a big issue, right, In right. when we come to AI and who is setting the data and where the data is coming from. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have any concerns about, you know, where the data comes from and the kind of, you know, training uh, of the AI and the quality involved. Yeah, so that's a very big issue. A lot of concerns, and not just me, but I think most of scientists, we are <laughs> a little bit puzzled on the one hand, excited and puzzled. So it's, it's a lot of mixed feelings. On the one hand, as a scientist, you want transparent communications of how certain models were trained, where the data is coming from, how the models were subsequently corrected through reinforcement learning, which is a particular strategy for this set of AI models. What's interesting is that OpenAI, despite the name of the company, doesn't do any of that. It's a complete black box, mm. be it in terms of the sources, their proprietary sources. We can guess where they're coming from, but we don't know 100%. And uh, so that makes it uh, quite challenging. We can do some reverse engineering, uh, but for many scientists like myself who argue for open methods, for open research practices, these models present an inherent challenge because we do know that in many ways they would either have biases built into them because of the culture is biased, uh, the culture that these models were trained on, or there were biases creeping in when you try to correct for those earlier biases by correcting them in the other direction. Because mm -hmm. um, obviously you don't want the, uh, the model to be racist or xenophobic or chauvinist. Um, but if you're a scientist and you're actually interested in studying those phenomena, if the model then has been corrected for those, uh, then the outputs that you get are not representative of how humans appear to be responding to a certain set of questions in the society as is. Why would someone want to use AI? You just mentioned authenticity being an issue, you know, transparency, bias. What would be, you know, the bonus to a researcher using AI instead of humans in their study? Well, the question whether they should or whether they will, those are two separate questions. I do think that for many aspects, we should not use these type of models. For instance, if you're studying a particular population that is not well represented in online texts or in through other type of written media, Using a model that sort of tried to create some kind of a guess-based response of what uh, that person for the, from that particular group would be saying uh, is probably strange, if not completely useless. But I can totally see how some other 
groups that may be very well represented. And if you know that for this particular group, there's little room for bias or those biases, you, you may be testing for that and you assured yourself through additional research that those biases are not really an issue, that you could simulate those responses at large and you could potentially test something that's very, very exciting. For instance, imagine you want to know for this majority group uh, which intervention is more likely to be effective for improving public health in a community. And you have 30 different proposals for possible intervention that is based on some preliminary scientific theory. Now, you cannot really do 30 different studies at scale, at large scale. It would be very, very expensive. And uh, maybe you have to do it very quickly and you don't have the resources. So a simulation with a model based on the parameters that you think would be quite reliable, if assuming that they're reliable, maybe one way to trim it down to most plausible interventions, which you then subsequently can run uh, with human participants. So that's one possibility where I can see some, some advantage. So if you can assure that, and this is a big if, if you can assure that there is not as much bias and the, the, the model represents the responses on key parameters as it should, then you could possibly reduce number of possible ways how you could help in a particular community. Uh, another domain where this type of models could provide at least some potential insight. Imagine you send somebody into space and on a mission to Mars, and you want to know how people in the spaceship will interact over the course of the next couple of years and what kind of group dynamics may emerge. Uh, whom should you be selecting to be in that spaceship? What kind of characteristics of that group would be better for the survival of that group so that they don't kill each other by the time they get to the, this other planet. Now, you can't really do a lot of studies here because we don't have that many <laughs> attempts to get to Mars in the first place. So it's all very hypothetical. Also, the number of participants that you would need is not enough for the purposes of a scientific study. Now, all that could potentially be simulated, again, with, a, with an AI, even though you will not know for sure if this is indeed a right answer. It's at least one answer compared to not having any insight at all. So would you use this in your own research studies? It's, it sounds like you're, you're leaning yes, but I'm curious to know how you would apply AI in your own work. So I'm very excited about using AI systems uh, for helping classify data, uh, really as a research assistant, uh, creates a paradigm shift, I would say. So I'm very excited about that. In terms of the simulation, I'm not so sure. I think there's some development that needs to be done, but I've already seen some interesting uh, advances in this domain where an addition of AI on top of the agent-based model makes for much more realistic simulations of human responses. Hesitated excitement. Uh, great, great chatting with you today, Igor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Igor Grossman is a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo. Still to come on day six. We give you three riffs, you guess the headline. I told the court that I'm wrong to imprison. Mr. Sue, you are not the jury. There's too much being hid from you. You should be taken out of the court. There's too much. He was one small man in a giant wheel, caught 
Well, I do wish to say that it's official that I'm wrongfully imprisoned right now. Uncover, Season 7, Dead Wrong. I asked him if he killed Pipple. He said yes, and I'd be next. Available on CBC Listen and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emil Niazi, in for Brent Banbury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. That's a clip from a pivotal scene in the Indian historical epic Mughal e Azam. And it might just be one of the most popular movie scenes of all time. No, seriously. When Mughal e Azam came out in 1960, thousands of people in Mumbai waited in line for tickets for days. The movie is about a young prince who falls in love with a dancer against his emperor father's wishes. Simple story, sure, but the movie is really remembered for its acting, soundtrack, and massive production value. Estimates suggest it took six weeks just to build some of the movie's most extravagant sets, including a replica of the Palace of Mirrors, the Shish Mahal in Lahore, Pakistan. Viewable copies of Mughal e Azam are hard to come by, and for a long time, the film lived only in the memories of a generation raised on it. Luckily for us, it was adapted into a Broadway-style musical in 2016, and it's now coming to Canada. Neil Patel is the award-winning set designer for Mughal e Azam, the musical. Neil, welcome to Day 6. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. So a lot of people in North America have likely never heard of the original Mughal e Azam movie. But even younger Bollywood fans might not fully understand just how big a deal this production really was. Can you give us a, an understanding of the cultural impact of this film? So the original film Mughal e Azam is... It's a film that most people in India who go to the movies, or even if they don't, will be aware of and probably know the story and know the music and the songs from it. You know, it's often talked about, like, Gone with the Wind here in the United States, or just a film that's iconic and in everyone's mind. So it's a huge, huge deal to see this movie on stage for the you know millions of people who are very familiar with it. My mom's talked about this movie actually growing up and, and Gone with the Wind is a perfect example of, I think, how big this movie really was. So given the, the scope, and I think a lot of people will understand the grandeur of Gone with the Wind, how daunting was it for you to try and take something this massive in scope and bring it to the stage, which can be so you know intimate and small? We were always when we were in the process of conceiving of the design, very aware that there would be great expectations for what this looked like. The director, Feroz Abbas Khan, and I, with the other designers, sat down a lot. But at the same time, we're all, in this particular case, theater makers. So really was focusing on what can we do? What is the language that the theater gives us that can tell this story on stage in a spectacular way rather than trying to imitate the film, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And what, what is that language? Like, what's the magic that, that the stage can do that, that sometimes film can't? The stage is best with a certain level of abstraction or suggestion rather than literalness. So I know what the point of view of the stage is, and I know that within the stage, 
I can suggest things quite simply that with the combination of story and the acting and the music can kind of open up a huge universe in people's minds and imaginations. For Mughali Azam, it was really about finding like what the container would be for the play architecturally, scenographically, like what is the box that it's in and how does that design then expand and contract and suggest all these vast places, Akbar's palace, the Shish Mahal, all these spectacular places. We're shown them literally in the film and we have to suggest them on the stage. So that was really the challenge and that we that we were faced with. Well, let's talk about the Shish Mahal. Um, you know, it's one of the major set pieces in K. Asif's movie. For people who aren't familiar, this is a, a giant palace of mirrors in, in Lahore, Pakistan. How do you go about reconstructing a set like that for the stage? That set in the film famously took months to build and was exorbitant cost, especially at the time for Bollywood film. I think it costs more than most films just to build that set. So that was probably the most daunting task in the stage design. And what we did, the, the basically the way the design works in all the spaces that we go to in the play is I have physical pieces, traditional scenery that's then expanded upon and extended in digital media by a giant screen in the back that originally was rear projection when we did this in 2016. And now in the touring production is a high resolution LED screen. So I'm able to create a physical piece of architecture, theatrical, you know, stage architecture. And then with the collaboration with the digital designer, John Naron, we create a stage picture that can be vast. With Shish Mahal, we have the tools to create the space on stage. With Shish Mahal, we had the problem of that set was full of mirrors. So wherever the camera would go, you'd get all this refracted light and, and right. kind of magic. You know, like on, on a film set, glass and mirrors are magical the way they reflect light and make a space come alive. Much harder to do on stage because the point of view of the audience is fixed and mirrors actually are problematic on stage with lighting. So what we did is we created a kind of spectacular backdrop of the Shish Mahal architecturally that kind of glitters in the LEDs and the digital media. And then the lighting designer and I came up with this idea of flying in these rotating pieces of mirror, they're actually plastic mirror for safety, that have Mughal patterns cut out of them. And what they do is, because they're moving, they're constantly catching the lighting and refracting and and moving the light all over the stage and into the audience. So it creates a sort of immersive environment, if you will, of reflected light from the mirrors that I think brings the that particular set piece alive. So you've got this, you know, iconic film that has resonated with this entire generation of, of Indians, South Asians, and then you have people who've grown up hearing about it. I'm so curious how the, the play is being received by, by all of these generations and who's showing up to see the, the play. I saw the first performance at Lincoln Center. We did it. I mean, the audience was mostly South Asian diaspora, though there were many generations. And I think people seemed pretty transfixed. I mean, there were people in the audience who were literally reciting the lines along with the actors. They knew the show so well. And then there were younger people who probably have heard or know of the film. 
through the parents or grandparents, and everyone seemed very transfixed. And then I brought my son, who did not grow up with this film, came with me, who's 22, and he was totally mesmerized by it. Even if you don't know the story, just the experience of the music and the dance is quite something. Well, this is the thing for me. You know, I, I watched the trailer for the play uh, and got so excited just naturally. And it made me think, you know, Bollywood films are in so many ways made for the stage. They have these memorable songs, high production values, incredible costumes, as you mentioned. Is this just the first of many Bollywood to Broadway adaptations? I would hope so. I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really rich cultural well and a way to kind of actually transform what kind of content can be seen on Broadway. You know, when we did this production in India, there was no precedent for a Broadway-style production of South Asian content like this. So I think it's the first, hopefully, of many things that can be developed like that. Just this season, um, I saw Mira Nair's uh, Monster and Wedding at St. Anne's Warehouse, which was incredible, I thought. And there are, I think, things in the works, because it does naturally lend itself. The color and the spectacle and the music is very much in line with the kind of production values people expect to see on Broadway. And also these are telling, you know, different stories and different perspectives that are, I think, going to be interesting and intriguing to people. Well, it sounds amazing, Neil, and it was such a pleasure chatting with you and good luck in Toronto this weekend. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Neil Patel is the award-winning set designer for Mughal A. Azam, the musical. The first Canadian show is in Toronto this weekend. This week, Hockey Canada announced the appointment of its new president and CEO, Catherine Henderson. The longtime sports executive and gender equality advocate will be the first woman to lead the organization full-time. Hockey Canada has come under fire recently with allegations it bungled an investigation into sexual assault allegations against members of its gold medal winning World Junior Team. Henderson's appointment is being seen as a sign that Hockey Canada is serious about equity, respect, and diversity. And speaking up for equity, respect, and diversity, we're all close to the heart of Herb Carnegie. I was good enough for the Leafs. Because according to Con Smythe, I would take Carnegie tomorrow for the Maple Leafs if someone can turn them white. Now I got that statement when I was 18. How would you feel? Hockey great Herb Carnegie speaking in a 2009 interview. Carnegie is often described as the greatest hockey player to never play in the NHL because he was black. Last November, after years of effort, Herb Carnegie was finally inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. At the peak of his career in the 1940s and early 50s, Carnegie played in the Quebec Senior Hockey League, at one point playing alongside Jean Belvaux, whom Carnegie mentored. He was offered a tryout with the New York Rangers in 1948, but he didn't make the team and made more money playing in Quebec. He retired from hockey in 1954, four years before Willie O'Ree became the first black player in the NHL. Herb Carnegie died in 2012, and his daughter Bernice spoke on his behalf at the Hall of Fame induction ceremony last November, and she had a message to share. We are responsible for making the sport better. We 
responsible for ending sexism, gender bias, racism, and homophobia. Bernice Carnegie joined host Brent Banbury on day six, just days after her father was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Here's part of their conversation. Bernice, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Brent. It's a privilege to be here. Well, the privilege is mine, but boy, getting your father into the Hockey Hall of Fame was a years-long effort for you, and it's finally paid off. How does it feel now that Herb Carnegie is inducted into this shrine of hockey? Well, I've had many, many emotions from the moment that I heard about it, from uh, disbelief and then uh, jumping up and down like a little kid. (laughs) And then being very emotional and starting to cry. And now I'm at the point where I feel a sense of peace in knowing that my father's contributions will be remembered uh, in a way that many generations from now on will have an opportunity to know what he did uh, for the sport of hockey. A lot of people will know that your father was a great hockey player, part of the great all-black line, Les Noirs, in the the 1940s. But during those years, he endured a lot of racism. What did he tell you about what he experienced as a black hockey player in those years? He was an anomaly in the sport with two other men at the time, Ozzie Carnegie and Manny McIntyre. And the three of them had an experience that other hockey players wouldn't have understood. And uh, systemic racism is a very interesting phenomenon for those of us who have experienced it, Mm -hmm. because it's not something that you always feel overtly, although my father did speak about the name calling. But, you know, I read one thing in his book, A Fly in a Pail of Milk, this one incident Uh, spoke about how he was in contention for the highest points that year. And the other person ended up in the hospital and they continued to give that gentleman assist points. And my father lost out by two points, but nobody said anything. That's the thing. He didn't say anything. His coach said nothing. The league said nothing. The person who won said nothing. But I'm wondering how that person felt knowing that he won and the points came while he was in the hospital. But how do you continue doing the thing that you love and then dealing with those humiliations along the way? Your your father ran up against the ultimate color barrier when he could not go into the NHL. And we heard that clip of your father just a moment ago telling the story of Con Smythe saying that he would sign him for the Leafs if someone could make him white. He heard those words when he was just 18 years old. What effect do you think that had on your father experiencing that and, and, and dealing with that throughout his life? He told me that he thought that if he played with his whole heart, and with passion every single time he stepped out on the ice that somebody would recognize him that there would be a coach that would see the value in what he did and would uh, give him that hand up but that did not happen 
the times were different. Uh, we still have issues today. But at least today we have ways to actually discuss or go to people or go to organizations to talk about our dissatisfaction when we're treated unfairly. My father was alone. There were no agents back then. It was all about him. And this was his livelihood. He had a home, a wife, children eventually. And the outlet for him to actually speak the words, you're being unfair to me, what, it wasn't possible. Or he didn't feel it was possible at the time. Are you surprised he continued to love hockey given the obstacles that he faced? I'm not surprised. Um, you know, he started skating when he was a kid on the ponds around his house. He said that he would stay out there until his fingers and toes were, <laughs> were cold <laughs> and frozen. And he listened to Foster Hewitt going, he shoots, he scores, and he envisioned right. himself being Primo and Harvey and, you know, all, all these wonderful players from the past. And so I'm not surprised. He just, he, he spent 17 years working, I want to say working with, with quotations around it, at a sport he loved. Mm -hmm. And he just, it, it was his first love until my mother came along. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the game now because your father retired from playing hockey nearly 70 years ago, but there are still incidents of racism in the NHL. As you know, in, in hockey's finest hour, the, the Stanley Cup finals, Nazim Kadri endured threats and racist abuse. So what does that tell you about where the game is today? What it tells me is not specifically where the game is because social justice issues aren't about one sport or another sport. They're about society. And what happens in sport happens outside of sport. And so you, I don't think you can separate them. We have a problem. We've had a problem ever since uh, people that look like me uh, were brought over in boats. And we've been fighting that problem for generations upon generations. And so I love that you've given me this opportunity to talk about my father and the wonderful contributions he's made, but also to bring to the fore that we need help. Help from everyone. Everyone who can see the vision uh, and wanting to make opportunities for all people, not just for a few of them, but for all people. What an honor. And it was a pleasure to talk to you today, Bernice. And congratulations once again, and all the best to you and your family. It was my pleasure. Bernice Carnegie joined host Brent Bambry on day six, just days after her father was inducted to the Hockey Hall of Fame in November 2022. Time, weather, and... Rift from the headlines. Ah! This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. Guess the story that links the riffs and you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. What's your name? What's your name? Is 
your daddy? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? Evans and Notorious B.I.G. with Don't Test Me, Mariah Carey with It's a Wrap, and The Zombies with Time of the Season. Aisley Ellis of Simcoe, Ontario, you guessed the headline we were looking for. Maury Povich launches an at-home DNA paternity test, and the universe folds in on itself just a little bit more. Congratulations, Aisley. A Day 6 tote bag is on its way to you soon. Now here's this week's clue. It's all a card game, card game, card game. It's all just a card game, card game, card game. It's all a card game, card game, card game. It's all a card game. What is the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer. Put Rift from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Rift from the headlines. Just a quick word before we leave you today about one of the biggest supporters of CBC Radio. Our former colleague Tim Lormer loved working here. He proudly worked here for decades, and he continued to champion us even after he retired. Tim suddenly died this week, and his loss is being felt across the country. He was a radio technician, so you may not be familiar with his name, but behind the scenes he was involved in recording and organizing some of radio's biggest projects. Whether we were producing a book review or an interview with a world leader, Tim was right there to help. He was someone who simply loved bringing radio to Canadians. And he was one of the nicest, kind-hearted people you could ever meet. But more than the CBC, Tim loved his family. He absolutely loved being a husband and a father, and our thoughts are with him and his family today. He'll be dearly missed. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Samir Chabra, Mickey Edwards, and Pedro Sanchez. Our intern is Rihanna Lim. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer this week is Yamri Tesfu Teresa. I'm Emil Niazi, in for Brent Bambury. Thank you for listening to Day 6. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.